Grab your Bibles. Let's go to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, look for verse 25. We're going to read verses 25 to 36. I see some new faces here this morning, so welcome. We are just plowing through the Gospel of John right now, having a great time. And uh, we've got two more Sundays now in chapter 7. Let me just take a moment and fill you in on the context of what we're about to read. Uh, Remember, Jesus has now left the relatively safe confines of Galilee up in the north. And he has traveled south, gone up to Jerusalem for uh, an annual feast, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And even though he knows that his life is now at risk, he goes into the temple courts boldly and begins to teach the crowds. Last week we saw how blown away the crowds were at his teaching. Isn't it interesting? John doesn't tell us what Jesus said, but we get the reaction of the people who heard him, and they're blown away. They know that Jesus comes from Galilee. Remember, that's the, the, sort of the backwoods of Israel in that day. So it's surprising that somebody with this type of teaching skill comes from Galilee. They know that he hasn't been formally trained, that he hasn't been discipled by any prominent rabbi, and yet his teaching is beyond anything that they've ever heard before. Now, the bulk of last week's sermon was about Jesus' back and forth with the crowd, particularly related to their blindness and their hypocrisy. He says they claim to love the law of Moses, but Jesus makes a sharp rebuke. He says, but you don't obey it. That's painful. And to prove his point, Jesus brings to mind a very sensitive subject from the last time that he was in Jerusalem when he went to the pool of Bethesda and he healed the body of a man who had been crippled for 38 years. Here was the key. He did it on the Sabbath. And that was the hot-button issue for the religious establishment, that he did it on the Sabbath. And so rather than they, they be just overjoyed at the fact that a fellow Israelite's body had been made whole, what they do is they gnash their teeth at Jesus because he's violated their man-made rules. And in response, Jesus then traps them in their own foolish logic, and he leaves them with this important rebuke, and this was the big idea for last Sunday, stop judging based on appearances. Stop judging based on appearances. Judge righteously. Judge things in truth. So I shared last week for a guy who's already got a lot of enemies, what Jesus is doing now in the temple courts is taking a stick and just poking it into the hornet's nest, and it's going to get worse. So we pick up the dialogue here in verse 25, same scene, okay, Jesus interacting with the crowds in the temple courts. Verse 25, so some of the people of Jerusalem, and underline that phrase, the people of Jerusalem, we're going to come back to these folks in a little bit. Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking or trying to kill? Look, he's speaking publicly, openly, and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? Now, when you see that word ruler, don't think king or queen or anything like that. This is a reference to the religious authority that's centered, the power center right there in Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel, the ruling body of Israel. And these people who resided in Jerusalem, okay, they would have known the faces of those members of the Sanhedrin. So it appears that what John's telling us is that some very prominent religious authorities are in the crowd that day, and they're listening, obviously, very carefully to everything that Jesus says. Now, the last phrase there in verse 26 is a little awkward in the New American Standard. Let me paraphrase it for you. Because the authorities aren't challenging Jesus' teaching here, the people were beginning to whisper. Is it possible that they know 
that he's the Messiah. Imagine. Verse 27. However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, or when the Christ appears, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I'm from, and I have not come of myself, or I have not come by my own authority. But he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. Verse 29, I know him because I'm from him, or I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him. There's another uh, uh, group of people you need to know, the crowd. Many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has. Will he? Again, the, the New American Standard, trying to be literal, gets a little bit awkward, so let me paraphrase. They're saying this, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than this man has done? Hmm. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees, you can underline that phrase, there's the third group in this crowd, the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize or arrest him. Now, historical note, the chief priests would have been the Sadducees, okay, the wealthier and more powerful of the two main religious parties in Jerusalem. Now, normally the Pharisees and the Sadducees don't get along at all. They're constantly bickering over theology, and they're constantly locked in a, a, a power struggle to, to, to win the hearts of the people. But, you know, as they say, politics makes for strange bedfellows, right? They're able to come together here because they both, both groups hate Jesus. They hate any radical preacher who's outside of their box who might show them up, okay? And so the Sanhedrin now is made up of both parties but from first century sources, we know that the Sadducees always held the majority on the court. And because the Sadducees oversaw all of the worship and the sacrifice there on the temple grounds, they also had access to their own personal police force, the temple guard, which was made up of Levites, the tribe of, of Israel that oversaw all of what happened on the temple courts. So that's what John means when he writes, the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. This would have been an official arrest warrant that only they had the, uh, the, the privilege of signing and it would have been handed to the temple guards to go and arrest Jesus. Verse 33, therefore Jesus said, for a little while longer I'm with you, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me and where I am you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Is, is he not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is the statement that he said? Or what does he mean by saying this? You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Okay, step back for a second. The big thing that you should see here in this story, the number one sort of primary thing you should see is there is a lot of opinions about Jesus here. And a lot of confusion about who he is, right? A lot of opinions, a lot of confusion. Who is Jesus? Where does he come from? Nobody seems to know. Nobody seems to be able to agree. And by the way, very little has changed over 2,000 years <laughs> in regard to that. In fact, I think you could make the case that there's even more confusion about Jesus today than at any other time in modern history. And by the way, that's primarily because our culture is confused about everything. Anybody notice this? 
We are, I mean, we cannot even define what a man is anymore or a woman. We have doctors now that literally say men can get pregnant. We live in an upside-down, bizarre world. So our culture cannot agree on anything. And the sad reality is it is becoming more and more rare today for people to think deeply about important things. We don't have time. We don't have the energy. We'd rather sit around and do other stuff. We don't think deeply. The idea of conducting personal research or devoting time to religious study just isn't a priority like it used to be. Now what do we rely on? Twitter posts and TikTok videos, right? Or maybe a soundbite from a cable news show. We need it really quick. Summarize it for me. We, we take complex things and say, summarize it for me in like 10 seconds. Because anything more than 10 seconds, I'm clicking on to the next thing. That's our culture. And so that's why we're in so much of the trouble we're in today. Opinions are now more important than objective truth. And as I shared last week, it's now everybody has their own truth, and that's all that really matters my truth, your truth, and so feelings really have become more important than facts. And by the way, if you dare say otherwise, you're probably committing some form of violence against me. This is where we find ourselves today. So when it comes to the subject of who is Jesus and where did he come from, you're going to find today a lot of confused people out there. And that's what makes this passage that we just read so timeless. It shows us that this has been going on a long time. Even 2,000 years ago, people were confused, and they were still holding strong but very misguided opinions about Jesus. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. How is it possible that Jesus is generally thought of as the most famous human being in, in history or the most influential man in history? Have you ever thought about this? If you look at surveys, and I did this week, over and over and over again, Jesus Christ is seen by people worldwide and in this country as the most famous person in human history and the most influential. And by the way, there's lots of other really powerful you know, characters from history that, that could fill that, that gap, that could win that crown. Plato or Aristotle or Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar or Augustus or Charlemagne or Da Vinci or Luther or Napoleon or Shakespeare or Lincoln. I mean, there's lots of really great people in human history the list is long, but Jesus is always at the top. This is a guy that came from obscurity, lived only three years in the spotlight. Think about that. Only three years. Owned nothing, wrote nothing down, had no wife, no kids, left not one earthly possession behind. And yet he's the most famous and influential person in all of human history. How do you explain that? How do you explain that? And now you might be thinking, well, what about Muhammad? What about him? There's 1.8 billion Muslims on the earth. Maybe he's up there with Jesus, right? But Muhammad had three things. There was three things about him that most famous people have in common. Number one, he commanded an army. <laughs> By the way, who writes history? The people with the armies that win. You know that, right? That's basically the people who write history, the conquerors. He was a conqueror. He, he led an army of thousands. He also conquered land and cities and nations. If you don't know, Muhammad conquered the entire Arabian Peninsula in his day. And he became incredibly wealthy and powerful in an earthly sense. So even with Muhammad, who might, you might think might come close to Jesus, not even a comparison. All Jesus did was teach and heal and die and raise from the dead. Amen. Right? And get this, at the end of his earthly life, 
he had fewer followers than the number of people in this room. And he's the most famous man in all of human history and the most influential. Who is this guy? I mean, literally, this is, these are the types of things you could ask people. Like, when you're talking to them about, about your faith, who do you think this guy is? I mean, that is an amazing uh, set of facts, isn't it? Several months ago, I talked about C.S. Lewis's famous, what he called his trilemma, right? What's known as the lunatic liar or Lord theory. And I won't go through it all, but it deserves another brief mention as we work our way through John 7, both today and next week, because this is sort of going to be the theme over these two Sundays. Lewis put it so nicely when he wrote these words. He said, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. Right? Right there you go, who does that? He goes on, he claims to forgive sins. He says he has always existed. He says he's coming to judge the world at the end of time. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really silly thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says this, that's the one thing we cannot say. It's the one thing we can't say. You must make your choice, he writes. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something even worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with some patronizing nonsense about his being just a, quote, great moral teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He didn't intend to. It's so important for us to see this. The words, and we've already seen it in John's gospel, how clear Jesus is, the the extraordinary claims he makes, but they're not hidden from the crowds, are they? He didn't give us that option. Great insight here from a brilliant man. So we need to be careful as believers and precise as we look at the evidence for who Jesus is and where he came from because our lives for all eternity hang on that one answer. Amen? All right. Let's go back to our text. As we reflect on the passage, I want to flesh out some of the details as we look at these three distinct groups of people that John says were present in the temple courts that day. Keep in mind, Feast of Tabernacles is a really big deal for the Jews. It still is today, by the way. It's a really big deal. Seven days of celebration. I mean, we don't get that. Well, maybe we do for Christmas. Do we get, Grant, do we get seven days? Okay, depends on who you ask. Okay. Seven days of celebration, celebrating God's goodness in the harvest and remembering back to the days of Moses when the Jews wandered through the wilderness and they had to live in temporary shelters. By all accounts, back then it was everybody's favorite holiday in the calendar. If you ask Israelis today, they will say it still is the greatest holiday on the calendar. They absolutely love it. So there would have been a massive number of Jews in the city of Jerusalem during this scene. And the, court, the, the courts of the temple would have been packed as well. So first in John's list of the people who were there that day are these people he calls the people of Jerusalem. What would we call them today? We'd say these are the locals. Okay. So the first group are the locals. And the interesting thing is, John tells us that the locals knew about the plot to kill Jesus. It's implied right there in the text. So this was a poorly kept secret in Jerusalem that the religious establishment had it out for Jesus. They just needed him to come to Jerusalem and they would take care of business. But in this scene, here he is now. He is boldly speaking in the temple, in the open, and in the temple courts would be the perfect place to corner him, right? And to grab him. But for some reason, the crowds realize 
None of the religious big shots are saying a word. None of them are, 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 gonna, are stopping Jesus from teaching. And this would have been surprising to them. What are they supposed to make of that? They knew the plot was out there, but now the guy's, he's teaching in the open, where are you guys? Well, John reports that some of the people began, began to wonder. Well, maybe because they're being silent, maybe because they're not intervening and stopping this, maybe that meant that the Sanhedrin had changed their opinion about Jesus. Had they come to the conclusion that this man really is the Messiah? Imagine. But then John says they quickly dismissed that idea, verse 27. Why? They say, because we know where this guy's from. We know where he's from. But when Messiah appears, nobody's going to know where he's from. That's the argument that they make. By this time, everybody knew who Jesus was, right? They'd heard all the stories about the miracles. They knew he was from Galilee. They knew his parents. They knew his siblings. Now, they didn't know about his birth in Bethlehem. That didn't seem to be widely known, and that makes sense, of course, because that was not a widely publicized event. And they definitely didn't believe in his pre-existence. They didn't believe that he had come from heaven, even though we've heard Jesus teach about that openly, haven't we? In John's gospel, he's made it clear to the crowds, I came from my Father in heaven. They don't believe it. But the stumbling block here was this interesting widespread belief in that day that when the Messiah did come, he would, his identity would com be completely concealed, that he would be hidden from sight, totally unrecognized until the last moment. And then he would spring into action and he would redeem Israel. That's what they were looking for, sort of a Judah Maccabee, a, high, a hidden Judah Maccabee that would suddenly appear on the scene and redeem the, the uh, Jewish people. And of course, part of that was the popular notion that he would come and lead them in a military sense, right? That he would throw off the chains of oppression of the Romans and he would usher in this time of great peace and prosperity. So that was widely held. Now, you may think that's really weird. That, why would the Jews hold to that? Well, you might be able to get that out of Malachi 3.1. You might, where it says that the Lord will suddenly come to his temple. But this seems to have been a rabbinical interpretation that was widely known. And if you think that's weird, I want you to think for a second about how we do this today in the church. How we tend to look at eschatology, right? And we've read too many books and seen too many movies about it. And we have formulated in our minds about how all that's going to go down. Right? Or how it's going to look. So we're, we're looking for the Antichrist over here, and we think this. and So we have all these expectations in our mind, but what if it doesn't end up playing out that way? I mean, if, if we're blessed to be the last generation that sees those things, I have, I have come to the place where I fully expect it to look utterly different than I think it will look. Because God is always a surprising God, right? He will always move in a way you go, didn't see that coming, <laughs> Right? So we gotta hold things loosely, right? When we have something that in scripture that's described to us, eschatology is important, but it's, there's some mystery to it. We gotta be careful to hold those things loosely and pray for discernment. Listen, learn from the Jews here. As we think about eschatology and how we picture it all playing out, learn from the Jews here. They couldn't get past their own opinions and expectations about the Messiah, and it caused them to miss him on the day of the visitation. We should learn from that. So for the people of Jerusalem, Jesus' profile does not fit their expectation of Messiah. They were failing to heed the, the command that Jesus just gave them. Stop judging by appearances. Judge righteously. Judge in truth. Judge correctly. They failed to do that here.
So I think the picture that John is drawing for us, at least at this point, is that it's a pretty chaotic scene in the temple courts. Again, it's really crowded, and the people are starting to get agitated. There's a whole bunch of them that are going, why isn't somebody stopping him from teaching? Where are they? What's going on? Some are debating. Is he, is he, maybe he is the Messiah. So there's a lot, of, a lot of side conversations happening in this crowd. The locals are all shouting, he can't be the Messiah. We know him. Absolutely not. That's not the guy. So there's all this stuff going. There's a lot going on. This is a pretty chaotic scene. This is not you know, a quiet room like this where Jesus stood up and said, attention, everybody. This is a chaotic scene in the temple courts. So Jesus, knowing that the people are arguing, John says he cried out in the temple. Whenever you see this verb in the Greek, kradzo, it's referring to a very loud and very emotional appeal. Jesus stands up, and I think he's trying to bring some order to the scene, to the chaos, and he wants everybody's attention because what he's about to say is really, really important. So he cries out in the temple. I mean, you get a picture of everybody's all of a sudden, oh, <laughs> he's talking again. I'll paraphrase in verse 28, in my own words, what he says here. By the way, most scholars think that there's a hint of sarcasm in what Jesus says here, verse 28. He says, oh, you know me, do you? A little, little, little sarcasm. Oh, you think you know me? You think you know me, why? Because you've heard about the miracles. Because you know where I grew up. You know I'm from Galilee. But really, you don't know me at all. You do not know me at all. And the reason you don't know me the reason why you haven't judged me properly or righteously is because you don't know God. Boom. Right? I mean, he's not pulling his punches here at all. Remember, these are the Jews. They prided themselves in knowing God. They were God's chosen people. How can you say we don't know God? Right? Spiritually speaking, they're the most privileged people in the entire ancient world. They've been given the very oracles of God, the Hebrew scriptures. And now this upstart from Galilee comes into our temple, tells us, people from Jerusalem, that we don't know Yahweh. Imagine the scene. And then he adds more fuel to the fire by drawing a contrast between them and himself. He says, but I know God. I know him because I came from him. He sent me. We've talked about this before. That claim is so outrageous in this day. No rabbi would ever make that type of claim of having that type of a personal relationship with Yahweh. Wow. But here's Jesus of Nazareth basically saying, you don't know the God of Israel, and since you don't know him, you can't recognize me for who I am. What a rebuke. And in verse 30, John reports that some of the crowd are so offended at this statement, and of course they are, that they spontaneously try to seize him. Okay, this is not the temple guards. This is the people of Jerusalem. They want at him. So chaos breaks out again, right? But they're prevented from grabbing him. God sovereignly sees fit that Jesus is going to remain untouched until his hour has come. So that's the first group, this people in Jerusalem. Now we come to the second group in verse 31, and it's simply the crowd. The crowd. John simply calls them. Now, we've seen these people before. We've seen them a couple times in this chapter. He uses that same phrase in verse 12 and in verse 20. And what he intends here, this is a broader term that includes not just people in Jerusalem, but pilgrims who have come to Jerusalem from outside of Israel, 
from every corner of the Mediterranean world. They have traveled for this great feast. So this is a much broader group of people. Now, it says many in this crowd believed in him. Now, what do you think that means? What does it mean? Now, we're not told anything more than that. I wish we had a little bit more data, but John does use the standard Greek verb for believe here. However, look at what John points to as the reason they believe. It points to the miracles, doesn't it? They say, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than this guy? So it seems that it's the miracles, the signs that have caused them to believe. They're impressed by the miracles, and who wouldn't be, right? Their thinking is this way. Well, look, we, we believe the Messiah. When he comes, he'll do miracles. Jesus checks that box. I don't think anybody can expect the Messiah to come and do more things than this guy has done. He's been doing miracles all over the place. But keep this in mind as we think about this belief. Over the last couple of chapters, we've encountered this very same type of belief. We called it sign faith, remember? Showed up in chapter 2, showed up in 5, 6, and now 7, sign faith. In fact, back in chapter 2, we read this. This is very specific. At the Passover, many believed in his name, observing the signs which he was doing, but Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. Same word believe in the Greek, but Jesus didn't entrust himself. Why? Because he knew the truth of their hearts. This was not true saving faith. They were only excited about the miracles. And then only temporarily. We find this, right? They're like, we love this guy. He might be the Messiah. When's the next miracle? Right? It's only temporary until he does it again. So what they have is a self-centered type of belief rooted in what they can get from Jesus. Not worshiping him, not trusting in him. Jesus, what more can you give me? What can I get from you? This is the ancient version of what we call today the prosperity gospel, isn't it? This idea that I'm going to worship Jesus as long as he keeps me happy and successful and rich. It's nonsense, right? So that's my take on this verse. The belief that John speaks of here is, I can't say for sure, but probably not authentic saving faith. But is it possible that some in this crowd actually did believe, that they went deeper than and they did come to believe in Jesus and trust in him alone. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's very possible that God was drawing some out of that crowd, his remnant of Jewish believers, right? And I hope so. We can all hope so, right? But we'll leave that up to God. Okay, that's group number two. Finally, final group, group number three, the chief priests and the Pharisees. Dum, dum, dum. We need like the, that's the, the villain. We need the Darth Vader music to start here, right? Verse 32, and I've already introduced you to these guys. Here's what you need to know about them. They are the elites of Jerusalem society. These are the elites. They're the powerful, the influential. These are men who expected to be obeyed. And it dawned on me as I was writing that this week, we have those type of people in America. Have you noticed this? We have those type of elites, wealthy, powerful, influential, People who expect all of us to sort of bow down before all of their opinions and all of their declarations without question. In Jesus' day, it's the religious establishment. In our day, it's celebrities and politicians and media moguls. And there's some interesting parallels about the elites of society. Now, the religious establishment in that day in Jerusalem, they hated Jesus with a fiery passion. With a fiery passion. Why? Because he couldn't be controlled. Right? And he wouldn't bow, the, bow his knee to the system. 
They could not get him. They would try to trap him. They would try to get him off track. Jesus will have none of it. He cannot be controlled. And he is not going to bow down to their man-made traditions. He's going to speak truth. He's always going to speak what the Father told him. So they hate him for this. Naturally, this is what elites do. If, if you say, I don't believe that to the elites, they, they, cannot, they cannot believe that you wouldn't listen to them. They, they go crazy, but wait, you're a peasant, and I'm up here. Why won't you obey me? Why won't you listen? Jesus drives them crazy. They hate the size of the crowds that he draws. They hate the brilliance of his teaching. They hated the way he ignored their man-made traditions, and they realized that every time he spoke, their authority was diminished in the eyes of the people, and they can't have that. Because everything that they are and everything that they own is rooted in their power and authority in Jerusalem. So on this day, when some people in this crowd begin to whisper about the possibility that this guy's the Messiah, they're not having it. They have to take action. This is when they order his arrest. And we're going to find out next Sunday what happens when the temple guards show up to grab him. That's the, that's the teaser for next week. But in the meantime, Jesus now senses that the temperature's been turned up. Of course, look what he just said, right? And the religious leaders in the crowds, he knows that they've made their moves. So now he turns his attention in verse 33 to his departure. And he says, look, guys, I'm only going to be with you for a little while longer. Right? Now keep the timeline in mind here, right? The Feast of Tabernacles is in the fall. Passover is in the spring, so we're six months away from that day when Jesus will enter Jerusalem once again, and people are going to lay palm fronds in the road and shout, Hosanna, and then a few days later, he's going to be crucified. So we're six months away from that. Jesus says, I'll be with you only for a little while longer. Where does Jesus say he's going? Verse 33, he's going back to the Father. How do you process that? Going back to the Father, back to his rightful place as the glorified Son of God at the right hand of power. And here's the subtext of what's going on here. Jesus is basically saying, look, guys, you will try to arrest me, but I will be the one who chooses where I go, when I go, and who will follow me. That's not up to you. That's my call. I've come to do my Father's will, not yours, and it will be done exactly on time and exactly as he has planned it. Again, he can't be controlled by the religious establishment. And of course, just like everyone else in John's gospel, the Jews don't understand what he's saying. How many times have we seen this? Nicodemus, woman at the well, all these different people, they always take it literally, right? They don't see the spiritual, the spiritual meaning because they're spiritually blind. And so they take him to mean that, oh wait, he's gonna go off and speak to the Greeks. He's gonna go to the diaspora, the Jews that have been scattered out in the Greek lands, and he's gonna teach Greeks. And they're just utterly confused. This is a scene of confusion and chaos. People can't figure out who he is, what's going on here. And the irony in that last statement, after Jesus is gone, will the gospel go out to the Greeks? You better believe it. And it's going to bear amazing fruit through the Apostle Paul and so many others. So it's almost a for they almost foreshadowed something that they dreaded, that the gospel would go out among the Greeks. Interesting text, right? Chaos, confusion in the temple courts. Who is this guy? Where does he come from? Now let's, let's go back to where we began this morning with that, that, that trilemma from C.S. Lewis. This passage actually illustrates his argument pretty well with just a small twist. Think about this. Some of the people in the story think Jesus is a fraud. He's a false messiah. 
Some of the people in this story think he's dangerous and they want him dead. And some people reportedly believe in his name. But the key here is this. This is, if, if I've lost you, wake up now. This is the big one. Nobody in this story ends up going, oh, he's just a good moral teacher. Nobody ends up with that. Jesus is super polarizing, right? That, that was part of C.S. Lewis's point here. Nobody ends up going, oh, good guy, good moral teacher. I mildly approve of him. Golf clap. I mean, that's not the way the Jews worked. Guys, the idea that any first century Jew would come to the conclusion that he's just a good moral teacher is sheer lunacy. When people say that, that is nothing but postmodern nonsense. Never would have happened in this culture. So we got to know that. Now, today you're still going to find people that hold all kinds of positions like this. There are still people out there, even smart people, who believe that Jesus was a lunatic. And you can find books written by people who claim that he was just profoundly self-deceived in his identity. He thought he was this, but he wasn't. You'll find those books out there. He thought he could save the Jewish people and usher in the kingdom of God. And it wasn't until that moment on the cross where he went, I guess I'm not him. I've just been crazy this whole time. I mean, this is a le legitimately people have written books to that effect. You'll find people today who still believe Jesus was a liar, that this whole thing was a fraud. And they will try to make the case. And I think it's laughable. I mean, it just, it just doesn't line up with human nature. But they will say, well, the disciples, after Jesus was gone, they just decided my identity is, identity is so wrapped up in being a Jesus follower that I'm going to keep propping up this false story. I, I just think that's crazy. People don't do that. But some folks will claim that, that the whole story was made up by the disciples and that the Gospels are nothing more than a figment of the early church's imagination. And of course, then you'll find all kinds of other ideas floating around. You've got the Christian cults that we're all familiar with, right, that want to strip Jesus of his divine nature altogether. They want to claim somehow that he's a created divine being, which is a self-defeating argument, right? You can't be created and divine. It just doesn't work that way. But they're out there. You're going to find liberal Protestant denominations who have taken every bit of the supernatural story in the Bible and pulled it out and then taken out the parts of what Jesus taught that they don't like They've ripped that out, and they come down to just one thing, and that is, well, Jesus said, love your neighbor and feed the poor. It's called the social gospel, and you'll find it all over the place. You should also know that there's a few scholars, only a few these days, who just say Jesus never actually existed as a historical person. He's a myth from beginning to end, but that is becoming really hard to stand on these days. I mean, even the most hardened atheist scholars are like, eh, we can't go there. <laughs> there's just too much evidence for his existence. So there's all these things out here, and, and if you spend any time on social media, you're going to see that there is every wingnut in America that you can possibly think of is going to have some unsubstantiated opinion about Jesus, and they're going to they're shout it boldly as if they're experts. Do you know these people? They, they post things, and they're so sure of themselves, and you can tell in about one second flat they actually haven't read the Bible, but boy, they're confident in their foolishness, aren't they? And so they throw things out there. There's no scholarship. There's no evidence. It's just my opinion. And by the way, look how cool I am. I mean, that's basically the root of it. I'm super cool and good looking, so you should believe what I say about Jesus. It's all over the place. So a lot of those folks even are out there saying, you know what? You guys should probably just deconstruct your faith anyway. You know, you should walk away from the Christian faith altogether. 
And by the way, we should expect this nonsense to continue, shouldn't we? As things get closer to the end, these voices will grow louder and they will grow more popular. So we as believers have to stand our ground. We have to not be swayed by all the stuff that's coming at us. For too long, at least in my generation, being a Christian, it was kind of easy. I mean, nobody really challenged you. People are like, you believe in Jesus? Good for you. It's getting harder. Have you noticed this? It's getting harder. It's going to get harder. And so more of these voices are going are to come out. So take heed, guys. Take heed that this is the direction things are heading. Take heed that the enemy is always prowling around, looking to devour some. And there's so much bad information out there. And sometimes, sometimes, and let's be honest, the naturally skeptical part of our sin nature, combined with the constant pressure from the spirit of this age, can cause us to start doubting. It can happen. So if you've been hiding that and you're like, I can't tell anybody I'm doubting, man, put that on the table. Talk to somebody. Talk to an elder. Talk to somebody, a mentor, a discipler, because we all go through those things. And I'm telling you, the spirit of the sage is going to continue to clamp down on us, and the enemy is at work. So I'm here to tell you this morning, don't hide. Keep asking questions. That's often the charge made against Christians. Oh, your pastor, he doesn't want you to ask questions. No, I want you to ask questions. I want you to read your scripture. I want you to ask questions. I want you to study. I want you to pray. I want you to keep thinking, both with your head and with your heart. And I want you to anchor your mind and your heart in the truth of the scriptures. But keep asking questions. That is absolutely important. Okay? What the Bible says about Jesus is true. Stand on that. Stand on that. Okay, in fact, I'm going to give you just three things. This will be really fast. In today's passage alone, three amazing truths that Jesus delivers about himself. Okay, three things, right? And maybe you saw them as we were going along, but look at these. Number one, that he's eternal in nature. How many other people you know that are eternal? Okay, just checking. That he possesses authority from the Father. Anybody else? Got direct authority from God the Father? Okay, number three, that he has a unique knowledge of God. So, Jesus says, for a little while longer, I'm with you, and then I go to him who sent me. Wait, hold on a second. The Father is eternal. Are you saying you're eternal? Yeah. Jesus is eternal in nature. He's claiming to have come from heaven and that soon he is going to return there. This is a statement of his pre-existence. Okay? And the Bible teaches that God the Son didn't just exist right before his physical birth or he didn't exist just right before creation came into being he has existed always for all eternity there has never been a time when the son was not does that make sense almost forgot the not adam was up here going there's never been a time when the son was not he is eternal in nature that is a wild is that not a wild claim if somebody got up and said that in front of you would you not go i have questions That is a wild claim. So is Jesus a lunatic? Is he lying about this or is he Lord? We have got to answer that question for ourselves. Second thing, he says, I've not come on my own authority, but the one who sent me, he is true or he truly sent me. So Jesus didn't come to earth, take on flesh and live as a man so that he could run around and do his own thing. It's not his plan. God the Father sent him with a specific purpose and mission and he gave him all the divine authority to represent the Father. 
This is what's so cool. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Those are wild statements, aren't they? What does that mean? It means if you're going to reject the Son, then you reject the Father who sent him. They're one and the same. Jesus came and had all the divine authority in the flesh that the Father had. Amazing. Third one, he says, I know him because I'm from him. This wraps it all together. Jesus has a unique knowledge of God because he alone has existed with the Father from eternity past. In John 17, when he's praying, he speaks of this. He is looking forward to going back to be with the Father so that he might enjoy the glory that they enjoyed together before the world was made. What a wild claim that is. He existed with the Father in eternity past. So who is authorized and who is capable of revealing God to people like us? Some guy on TikTok? I mean, who's authorized and capable of telling you the truth? Some guy on social media? Well, how about the guy that's been with God in heaven, came down to the earth representing God, and is now back at the right hand of power? Maybe we should listen to him. Maybe we should listen to him. He's the one that you can trust to tell us about God and what God desires. Friends, Jesus of Nazareth is either, this is, this is, he's either the most wicked deceiver who has ever walked this planet, or he is God the Son. You decide. Is there another rational choice? Because if, he, if he's lying or if he's a lunatic, guys, he has deceived, I think what the latest number was 2.5 billion people claim to be Christians, and he has led them straight to hell. That would be the most wicked man who has ever walked the earth. There is no other choice. There's no rational choice. So listen, if there's anybody here this morning who hasn't, who hasn't trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, let me quickly say this to you. Do not do today what happened to the Jews 2,000 years ago and miss the window of opportunity of hearing about salvation. Think about this. That crowd in the temple courts that day had the Messiah right in front of them. They were right under his nose and they missed it. They missed it. So if God has given you a measure of light this morning through anything I've said, do not ignore that. Today is the day of salvation. Trust in Christ alone. And for those of you who have trusted in Jesus already, listen, while there's so much confusion out there and so many opinions, do we not know what's going on? Have we not read the book? Do we not know that this was prophesied, that it was going to go this way, that it's going to get harder, that love is going to grow cold? All of these things, we know what's going on. But listen, Together, as a church family, we have got to keep rooting ourselves deeper and deeper in the truth about these things. We don't just stop at salvation. Ooh, I've got my fire insurance. I'm safe. No. We continue to root ourselves to go deeper and deeper in God's word, and then we hold each other up in these difficult days ahead. We've got to be together on this. Listen, you cannot do what Jesus commanded here, to judge righteously without taking in, ingesting God's righteous source of truth and authority. You need the word, I need the word. This is one of the reasons why in the underground we're starting with bibliology. This is why we're doing that on Wednesday nights. Dive in with us. Together we are going to find out that that Bible that you hold in your laps or on your phone, wherever it is, that it is historical, that it is reliable, that it's worthy of your trust. But more importantly, he is worthy of your trust because that Bible tells you who Jesus is and where he came from. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads.
God, I am so thankful this morning that you have given us your word. Lord, we couldn't know you just from nature. We couldn't know you just from our own sinful hearts, Lord. You had to speak to us about these things so that we might know the name of Jesus, so that we might know God the Son, that we might put our trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins. So, Lord, Apart from that revelation, God, we would all be lost in our sins. So this morning, let us first praise you for that, that you condescended to speak to your people, that you have drawn us out of this world and you have saved us. You caused us to be born again, brought us to life. And we sit here this morning, Lord, may we never take that for granted. May we not sit here passively as if that's not a big deal. It is. It's a huge deal. Father, I pray now that we might grow together as a church family, that we we might all attain to unity in the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man together, deeply rooted in your word, standing strong for the storms that are coming our way. God, make us that church, again, for your glory, Lord, and for our good, we pray. Amen.